0: Good morning, great men and women of God. I'm really excited that you're here with us today. It's been a fantastic summer here at Pulpit Rock and some different things. Uh, I loved getting to work through Philippians and and learn uh, about us together through that book. And the last few weeks, we've been sharing a lot about growing young and how as a church we're going to continue to figure out ways to uh, invite the next generation to the table. But I got to admit, I'm really excited about right now this morning because I've been waiting... All year to jump into this series in Luke. And we're going to be starting a brand new one today. So if you're here today, you get extra credit. You get to be here at the beginning. And I'm very thankful that you're going to be a part of this with us. And I thought about the table a lot this week as we get into this topic. Because I've been thinking about, uh, as I'm sure you have, the events in our nation over the last few weeks and months. And uh, I, we're all pretty clear that the, the conflict over race in our nation has intensified. And especially things came to a head uh, most recently in Charlottesville, And if you remember that. One of the conversations that's come out after Charlottesville is uh, about the statues that we have in our nation that are memorializing Confederate soldiers and generals. And there's a big conversation. Should those come down? Should they get relocated? What does it mean? All this stuff is happening. There's a town that I pastored in for seven years in Texas that the high school in this town is Robert E. Lee High School. And so over the last three weeks, there's been a huge conversation in that city with the school board and different people on, what do we do about the name of this school? Do we rename this school? Or how do we get through this stuff? And um, I'm not always sure what the right answer is, but I've been following some of my friends down in Texas as they've had this conversation. And I've been shocked at just how angry and how vehement people are And it seems like no one's really listening to each other, they're just taking shots at each other. And I'm wondering, what's it going to take to move forward with that? Well, then about a week and a half ago, I got a phone call from my friend Brian who lives in another place in Texas, it's a pretty white community, and he's an elder at their church. And their church is trying to figure out, hey, how do we as a church get involved in these conversations in a good, healthy way? And I said, well, tell tell me what's happening, what's going on in your lives? And he related a story to me about a conversation he had about a week before with an African-American gentleman that had come to his church, and they were having lunch. And Brian said they, they were talking, and the subject of these statues came up. And Brian said, look, I just don't understand what the big deal is. I mean, every time I see one of these statues, I just think about the history of our nation. And the man said to him, he said, Brian, every time I see one of those statues, I think about oppression. That's my history. And Brian said in this conversation, it's like a light went on for him, and he began to realize, sitting at this table, hey, some people have a different experience of history than I do, and I need to learn to listen a little bit better. And I said, why are you calling me? It sounds like you're on a good track here. I was thinking about Brian, I'm thinking about these conversations in our nation, I'm I'm wondering what's it going to take for us to really move forward, and I wonder if sometimes it just takes a table. That's what Brian discovered. Sometimes it takes a table for us to resolve a conflict. Sometimes it takes a table for us to make a new friend. Sometimes it takes a table for us to work out a deal. Sometimes it takes a table for us to remember who we are. Last night, we took my wife out for her 23rd birthday. We were so excited to celebrate her. We had this table at a schmancy restaurant, and, and all my kids were there. And the first part of the meal, my kids were like, well, I'm going to order this and this. And I'm like, well, well, or or maybe we could share this. And, you know, you had to cut loose with that. And we're we're celebrating. We're, we're all saying things we love about mom. And, and we're saying, like, hey, what's your favorite thing about mom? What's the funniest thing mom did? What's the, all this stuff. And, and just the, sitting at that table, I thought, this is, this is so great. It's so rare. It's so great. Because sometimes it just takes a table to have those conversations. I don't know about you, but my kids don't just walk in the door and go, Hi, Mom, I'm home. I've been thinking about what a great mom you are, and I just want to tell you these things. No, it, it took a table to make that happen. And I don't know if your table is fancy or your table is frugal. I don't know if you have a table that's made of handcrafted wood and in a really nice house, or maybe it's just a blanket that you lay down on the grass in a park. But sometimes it takes a table to reconnect and to rediscover who we are. I like what Simon Holt says about this. I was reading this quote. I thought it'd be helpful to share. He said, it's through the daily practice of the table that we live a life worth living. It's through the table that we know who we are, where we come from, what we value, and what we believe. Listen, he said, at the table we learn what it means to be family, how to live in responsible, loving relationships through the table we live our neighborliness and citizenship we express our allegiance to particular places and communities and claim our sense of home and belonging at the table we celebrate beauty and we express solidarity with those who are broken and hungry see the tables more than just a flat surface the table is a place where we break bread and whether the bread you break is wheat or white or gluten-free whether it is tortillas, whether it's pasta, whether it's croissants or crepes, we are with whom we break bread. We are with whom we break bread. And that's why the table is not our idea, it's God's. I've really come to believe in my study of Scripture that the table is a very powerful thing that God has created for us, and it's an invitation. And as we've said here often at Pulpit Rock, the story of our history begins at a meal gone bad in a garden. And that story continues around a table where the God of the universe sits with people and says, I promise one day I'll make it all right again. And the way that we're going to know that everything is finally made right, the way that we're going to know that everything has finally been restored, the way that we're going to know that God has says, I'm finally done fixing everything, is when the Bible tells us that we're all sitting around a table at a forever feast. With the choicest of meats and the finest of wines, we raise our glasses to the table host, and he says, welcome, come and eat. History of our life is around a table. See, when God wants to share his most powerful truths, sometimes it takes a table. When God wants to bring two enemies together, sometimes it takes a table. And when God wants to bring us back to relationship with him, sometimes it takes a table. Now, nowhere is this seen more than the life of Jesus Christ. And this is why I'm excited about getting into the book of Luke and following Jesus Christ. Because what we'll see is the table is more than a metaphor for connecting with God. It's actually the method Jesus used to bring the kingdom. So let me ask you this. Why did Jesus say that he came? Let me think about that for a second. I'm not asking you why he came. That's a theological answer. I'm asking what Jesus said. We find in Luke that Jesus, referring to himself as the son of man, this is a title he liked to use to connect himself with a greater narrative of what God was doing. He said the son of man came, and he said three things. The son of man came to seek and to what? Save the lost. He said the son of man came not to serve, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the son of man came what? This is what Jesus said. The Son of Man came, the Son of Man came, the Son of Man came. The first two, I would say, are why he came. Why did Jesus come? Well, to seek and save the lost, to to serve and not be served, to give his life as a ransom. But how did he come? That's the third one. He came eating and drinking. And I would contend that it's the third one that got him killed. Why was Jesus making everyone so mad? It's the tables he sat at. It's who he invited to the table. Who he ate with, where he ate, what he ate, this made people so angry they killed him. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they killed him for it. And I always like to think about the gospel, I like to think about different things about it, and right now, this is my favorite definition of the gospel, it's not new, but I really like it, it's this, Jesus ate good food with bad people. Isn't that brilliant? Don't you love that? If someone were to ask you walking out today, hey, what's the gospel, and you didn't have like 16 hours, Hey, what's the gospel? You know what the gospel is? Jesus eats good food with bad people. And that's what we're going to eat our way through the gospel of Luke this fall. Because Luke was a, was a believer in the early century, and he had this mission. He said, look, uh, these eyewitnesses are dying off that, that used to see Jesus, and I want to collect everything. And he did good research. He was very methodical. And he arranged all his materials so that we wouldn't lose the stories of Jesus. And yet, in Luke's arrangement of the gospel, Jesus is always doing one of three things. He, he's either on his way to a meal, he's actually at a meal, Or he's just leaving a meal. You read the book of Luke, that's the whole story. This guy was always eating and drinking, just like he told us. And yet at these meals, he used the table to show us how life could be. So how can God use the table in our lives today? We're going to study that this fall, but we're going to start this morning by sitting down together. I invite you to sit with me. You're already sitting, but go ahead, metaphorically. Luke chapter 5. Let's catch up with Jesus at a meal and see where he goes. We start Luke chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 28, 29. And it's going to start with kind of before the meal. And it's this. Jesus went out and he saw a tax collector called Levi. He was sitting at the, at the tax office. He said, follow me. And Levi left everything, got up and followed him. Levi made a great feast for him in his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were there reclining at the table. I want to pause here and leave this up for a moment because I want to walk through a couple things. Um, hey, quick question, quick poll. How many of you are thrilled to write your check to the IRS every year? How many of you think that's awesome, you love doing that in front of you? Thank you, Kevin. <laughs> Kevin enjoys all the, uh, the, the benefits of being an American. Thank you. I appreciate that. Most of us aren't excited about that check, Kevin. But these people back then had a special reason to hate. See, it wasn't just paying taxes. Oh, I hate paying taxes. These guys hated the tax collectors. Because here's what happened. If you remember, Israel at this time was under the oppression of the Roman Empire. And the Romans had moved in. And how are they going to fund their empire? They're going to levy taxes on people. And so what they would do is they would set up a little booth outside of every village. And let's say that you're coming into town. You're going to sell some pottery you made. Maybe you're going to sell some crops that you grew. And you get to town and all of a sudden there's a toll booth there. And there's a guy sitting at the table. And the guy says, what are you bringing in? Oh, I'm bringing in some crops to sell. Okay, well, I need to take uh, 20% of that for the Roman Empire. Uh, you're going to take 20%? Yeah. Well, but I heard that the Roman Empire was only charging 10%. Yeah, 10% for them, 10% for me. Give, give it over. Well, I don't want to pay it to you. Great. See these guards right here? They are here to make sure you pay. Because they don't care what I take off the top. They only care that they get their money. So, of course, now, these people are hating that they're being charged these exorbitant taxes, but here's the worst part. The Roman Empire couldn't spare any of their precious Roman citizens. They're not going to sit at a table all day. So they went and they recruited some local Jewish men. And they said, hey, um, you can make a cut of this if you'll sit at this table. And so these guys were traitors to to their country. They were traitors to their cities. I mean, can you imagine if somehow some occupying force moved in over our nation, and you look down the street and one of your neighbors was working with them? Oh, you'd hate him. Oh. but this guy—they were just trying to find a way to make a living. Now, here's what's funny: when you read the Gospels, a lot of times it always seems like there are tax collectors and prostitutes. You ever notice that? You're like, "Good night. How many tax collectors and prostitutes were there?" Because it seemed they're all over the place. Well. In the Gospels, it seems like these people are some of the most looked down upon in all of society. And yet, who's often the most responsive to Jesus? And we see that with Levi. Jesus walks up. He's been teaching, asking people that don't have time. He walks up to Levi, and Levi goes, okay, I'll follow you. So he follows him. And he decides to have a great feast for him at his house. And he invited a large group of all his friends. And because he was the most hated guy in town, who were all his friends? the other hated guys in town, and they all showed up together, and Jesus is here, and they're all reclining at table. Now, that's actually kind of a fun phrase, and I want you to know that I researched this. i just like to show you at least that I did research some of this. Reclining at table was a way that these people ate back then. Now, here's an actual photo Luke took of what it means to recline at a table. Now, so back there in this day, you know, you you did not have movies to go to. You didn't have concerts to go to. You didn't have television to watch or Netflix to binge. And so your entertainment was conversation. And they tried to think, how could we have a great conversation? And so you see these, uh, this is actually a photo from a Roman uh, uh, hotel that's like going right now. This is not an actual photo, Kevin, of Uh, actually Luke didn't take that okay so do you see what they're doing there? you have a u-shape you have three couches one couch two couch three couch and these people are lying down they're reclining on these couches they're reclining and there are three couches so it's called a triclinium that's your big word for the day and at this triclinium you could lay down it wasn't a hurried meal it's just hey we got a course coming out we're all eating how was your day oh my day was great great well tell me this and so for the entertainment kind of part of it, they would often, if there was someone traveling through that maybe was, was wise or maybe they had some stories of their travel or maybe they were adventurers or maybe they were religious leaders or maybe they were scientists or doctors or whatever in that day, and they would say, oh, come on, have a meal with us and recline. It's so fascinating. What do you do for a living? How does that work? so one of the biggest personalities of the day is Jesus. He's walking around. So what we're going to see in Luke is there's lots of tricliniums that Jesus gets invited to because people are saying, hey, come be our guest. We want to find out more about this uh, rabbi. and Tell us more about what you do. And they just relax all night. People would bring them drinks and food. And that was what they did. And they ate. And they'd have these really interesting conversations. Speaking of conversations, here's one now. Verse 30. So the Pharisees and the legal experts began to grumble to Jesus' disciples. Why do you lot eat and drink, they said, with tax collectors and sinners? Now, I've got to be honest. Whenever we read the Gospels, the Pharisees, they're the bad guys, right? We all get that. They're twirling their mustache, and they're plotting things, they big top hats, and they're always out for bad things. They're trying to kill Jesus. I, I want you to know, though, if you actually met a Pharisee, There are two things that would become immediately clear to you. They love God more than anything else. And they love their country, second to him. These are the most patriotic, God-fearing, loving people. Now here's the problem that they had. They looked around their nation of Israel, and they said, we love God, and we love Israel. And, and all we read in the, in, the, in the stories here and in the book here is how Israel's supposed to be blessed and great. But I look around, these Romans are on every corner, and they're beating people, and they're taking our money. This doesn't feel very blessed. What went wrong? And here's what their idea was. You know what went wrong? Somewhere we stopped obeying God. That's what they thought. And specifically, we stopped obeying the Torah, Now, the Torah is what they would call maybe their Bible. We would call it the first five books of the Old Testament. Have you ever read any of the first five books of the Old Testament? Have you ever decided, I'm going to try to follow everything in these five books? It's really difficult, right? And so even what they had this idea was this. They said, you know, if we could just get people to obey the Torah, we could make Israel great again. So they were fueled by passion for God and for their country, and they were trying to get that. But, but the problem is, like I said, is that obeying all those rules were difficult. People would say, well, how do we obey this rule now? We don't even do sacrifices anymore like that, and we don't even do that. It was really hard to apply their Bible to modern day times, and so the Pharisees had a plan. They said, well, we have these guys called scribes. All they do all day long is they study, and they study, and they write up these little books. And the little books tell us how to apply that. Oh, so the commandment says to honor your father and mother. Well, gosh, how do we obey that, scribes? Oh, well, that means that you do this, that you take your mom out for lunch every week, or you do this, or you do this. And they would write all these rules. But what happened was, over time, these scribes' rule books became synonymous with the truth. And so if you said you wanted to to follow God, you had to follow their books. And that became the standard of who and who is not a sinner. Now, we use that word sinner, if we can go back to that verse for just a second, uh, uh, where we talked about it, I think, a minute ago. Uh, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now, if you, ha- if you are a believer in Christ, there's a moment where you understood the word sinner. It meant, hey, I have broken God's rules. I have disobeyed God, and I'm a sinner. And really, to, to kind of put your faith in Christ, starts with a conversation, I'm a sinner. But that's not what they were saying when they said this. See, the Bible tells us all of us are sinners and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. But when the Pharisees used the word sinners, I want you to look back again. Here's the word of God, but they would say, well, anyone who doesn't follow all our scribes' books, those are the sinners, and they're the problem. Because in their mind, the way they had interpreted it was the same as scripture. Now, have you ever been in a place where you felt like maybe a church or religious group where you're like, hey, I'm not sure that you're very distinct between what God says and what you think God says. They kind of seem to be the same. And that's what the Pharisees were like. The way that we tell you that the the word of God means, you have to follow that or you're a sinner. So can you imagine, what if you came to Pulper Rock Church and you had the Bible? And I said, well, the Bible says this, and I think it means this. And therefore, if you don't do that, then you're a sinner. It's a very burdensome system. And so they considered anyone who didn't keep all their rules to be a sinner. It was a very technical term. One of the things that Jesus was constantly doing, do you remember he'd walk around and he'd say, you have heard it said, but I tell you what God really meant. He was always trying to rip off those pages and come back to the truth. Now here's a good example right in the text. Did you catch this? Luke is telling us a story and Luke says Jesus was sitting down and eating with tax collectors and who? What What did Luke say? Others. The Pharisee said, why are you eating with tax collectors and, did you catch that? Luke says, well, he was just eating with some other people. And the Pharisee said, no, he's eating with those sinners. And they're the problem, and that's why our country's in the shape that it's in. One of the most important rules in their rule book was this. Um, If you're following God's rules, don't eat dinner with those who aren't. Because if you eat dinner with sinners, guess what you have just become? A sinner, you're infected. You got dirty because you sat there and ate with them. And eating with the sinners, you know, if if you eat with a sinner, it's like you're saying that all these rules don't matter anymore. Do you remember your cafeteria in high school? Do you remember walking in there? And you could probably visualize right now, right? The jocks all sat here. The popular people sat here. The band people sat here. Other people sat here. Do you ever remember that first day when you walked in with your tray? Where do I sit? Wondering what the rules were. That's what it was like in first century Israel. There were rules. And the rule was, if you're pure, don't eat with people who aren't. Never recline at the same level. So here's the problem now that the Pharisees are struggling to understand. They're like, look, we don't understand. This guy Jesus shows up. He says he's a rabbi. Good. But he's eating with sinners. Bad. Is Jesus pure or is he a sinner? Disciples, tell us what the answer is. Before they could open their mouth, Jesus jumps in. Verse 31. Healthy people don't need a doctor, replied Jesus. Who does? Sick people do. I haven't come to call the righteous. I'm calling sinners to repentance. Now, at, at first when you hear this, if you're one of those Pharisees, you're like, oh, thank goodness. <laughs> I am righteous. I know you're not here for me. You're here for them, right? I've been, look, I've been writing letters. I've been praying. These guys are messing things up, these sinners. Thank goodness someone's going to come deal with them. Is that who Jesus is talking to? He's talking to the Pharisees. He's not saying some people are already so righteous because they followed so many rules that they don't even need God's help. No, no, no. What he's saying is this. Look, I'm not here for people who think they're healthy. In fact, if you think you're healthy, if you think you don't need God, you're not going to find a place at my table. You won't find welcome because you don't think you need it. I'm here for the people who will admit right off the bat, oh, yeah, I messed up. You have to admit you're sick before the doctor can help you. So here's what Jesus is doing in this in this conversation. Then we're going to pause for a second. Jesus is bringing a new kingdom. A kingdom where your place at the table is not about how worthy you are, but if you've been welcomed. Now let that sink in. He is upsetting all the apple carts. Jesus is saying, "My kingdom is not about how worthy you are to sit at a table, but whether you've been welcomed." And it drove people nuts, and they killed them for it. So this brings up a question kind of for us. It maybe brings up a few questions, and I want to pause for a minute and give us a chance to kind of reflect on this with God. This is something we we did, uh, uh, we've done for a long time at Pope Rock. We took a break, but we're back here. I want to give you a moment to think about this conversation and this text in John 5 with Jesus himself. Here are some questions that could guide this time. We're just gonna play for a moment and let you have some time to talk. You might wanna talk quietly with the person next to you or you might wanna have some time of prayer and just asking God, use these questions as you think about the kind of table Jesus sat at. Let God speak to us for a moment about our table as well and then we'll come back and see how Jesus kind of wraps that up for us. You know, I, um, I realize now looking at these questions, some of them seem kind of easy. Uh, in fact, when I came up, so I wrote those questions, so I already know what the right answers are. Right? So i like, check. All right. Uh, who wouldn't be welcome at your table? Everyone's welcome at my table. That's a good, easy question for me. Uh, move on. But then I, even in the last service, in this service, just sitting here, I'm realizing, you know, there is a list of people that wouldn't be welcome at my table. And maybe I would never overtly say that, like I don't have a sign in front of my house, these certain people aren't welcome at my table. But by the very fact that I've never taken an interest or invited, uh, that's by default. There's some people I wouldn't have at my table. Might be an interesting conversation to continue over your table later today. But I find it interesting that at this first public meal of his ministry, Jesus inaugurates a new way of life. It's a table where all people are welcome. And this first meal of Jesus makes me want to ask a question. Here's the question I'm asking myself from the text today, and it's this. Does my table look like Jesus' table? If you took a snapshot of every meal I've taken the last 365 days, would those look the same? Would they look like Jesus' The Son of Man came to seek and to save, to serve and not be served. And the way the Son of Man came to do this was by eating and drinking. And it makes me wonder if this is more than theological, if it's actually methodological. What I mean by that is not just, oh, that's a nice thing Jesus did, but perhaps this is the way that we're supposed to also bring the kingdom one meal at a time. Maybe we're supposed to use our tables for conversation, for welcome. Maybe these are the tables where the story of God is going to be shared with people. Could that be true? Spoiler alert, yeah, I think it is true. (laughs) And the reason is, I go back a few verses earlier, this is exactly what Jesus told his followers. A few chapters earlier, Jesus is giving his disciples instructions. Okay guys, I want you to go out and I want you to share the good news, I want you to bring the kingdom. Oh, and here's how you do it. If you go into a town and they welcome you, then do what? What does it say? Have you ever heard that command in any discipleship course or study you've ever done? Can you imagine that if someone's come to you and said, do you want to be a believer in Jesus Christ? Yes, I do. Then you need to eat. Wow. That sounds great. Listen to what he says. Eat what they provide you. Sit down and break bread with them. Heal the sick who are there. You meet whatever needs that you see. And then you say to them, God's kingdom has come close to you. Now, the way I used to think, I would reverse those. Hey, the eating and healing, that's fine, but you've got to get out there and make that proclamation. And it seems like Jesus is saying, you know, if you could just sit down and have a meal with someone and you could help meet some needs, guess what might arise? An opportunity to tell them about the good news of the kingdom. Before people believed in Jesus, Jesus welcomed them to a table. Before people behaved the right way, Jesus welcomed them to a table. Jesus went to a meal filled. Now, Levi had said, yeah, I'll follow you. But he's filled his room with all these people who didn't believe in Jesus and weren't behaving the right way. And Jesus said, let's eat. Now, here's what I'm wondering about us. Wouldn't it be great if when people talked about us at Pulpit Rock, they said, Those people at Pulpit Rock will eat with anyone. Like imagine, what if this week somehow the topic of church came up and you mentioned, oh, I go to Pulpit Rock. And instead of them saying, oh, I used to go there too. uh, (laughs) What if instead they're like, Pulpit Rock? That's the church that will eat with anyone. I heard you guys will welcome anyone to your table. Wouldn't that be amazing if that was our reputation in Colorado Springs? That's the church that eats with anyone. Why aren't we more like that? For me, maybe I suffer from the same problem that the Pharisee had in Luke's gospel. I don't see people as others. I see them as sinners. And by sinners, I mean the technical thing of they're not living up to my version of the rules. We all have a rule book of what it means to be a sinner. It might be what they eat or drink for dinner. It might be what they smoke after dinner. It might be what they watch or listen to. It might be who they love. It might be who they voted for. It might be that they just don't care about the right things like they should. The Pharisees thought, if I pull out a chair for a sinner, I will be less holy. Why is it that Jesus wasn't afraid of that? He never seemed ashamed or freaked out by who he ate with. In fact, he never lost his holiness no matter who he sat with. Author Hugh Halter talks about Jesus and he says that Jesus had a sort of whimsical holiness. Whimsical holiness. And by that he means Jesus seemed to be able to hold on to his sense of humor and his sense of holiness. He was able to love people as others and not as labels. Hugh says this, people with Jesus' whimsical holiness don't gasp for air when someone curses. They don't avoid a group of people, a place, or a party because someone might get out of hand. They do inhabit dark places with the intention of protecting and redeeming, befriending and befuddling people with acceptance and love. They do win the lost because they're the only ones who will hang out with the lost. And maybe when we welcome sinners to our table, we'll start seeing them as others. And this is the real subtext of the table that bothers me from Luke chapter 5. Jesus is welcoming all these sinners, but who is he really challenging in this moment? The hosts of the table, the Pharisees. And maybe the point of the table is not that we're welcoming people because, oh, that'll be good. It'll really help them. It'll change them. Maybe we welcome people to the table because God says, that's part of my process to change you. How do we start to see people the way Jesus does? Sometimes it takes a table. So where do we start? Let me make a suggestion. As we've been talking this morning, I've been sharing this with you and teaching through Luke 5 about welcoming someone to a table. Has anyone's face been coming to your mind? There anyone where God's kind of saying to you, hey, I think this is a person you need to welcome. And what if you invited that person and welcomed them to a table this week? It could be breakfast at Chick-fil-A. It could be coffee at Third Space. It could be sharing a bagel at the workplace table. It could even be your own home. What would that look like? Now, maybe you're saying, I, you know, I'm sitting here, Thomas, no one has come to mind. Okay. Do you remember back in the spring, we taught a very powerful spiritual discipline called learn your neighbor's what? Name. Maybe it starts with a neighbor. You learn their name back in the spring, and this is a good chance to say, hey, I want to just welcome you to a table. Before I pray and close, let me give you one example of how this plays out in our life. So um, I am married to a woman who will often have ideas that I don't think are good or will work. I will explain to her that that idea is not good and that it won't work and then guess what we do? We do that idea. Right. That's how that works. So she had an idea two weeks ago. It was a Friday. We had the day off and she said, what if we had happy hour at our front porch and we welcomed all our neighbors? And I said, no one's going to want to do that. No one's going to want to show up at a random house that they don't know the people and do that. This is not a good idea. So guess what we did? So we did that idea. So we, she and I made, she made up flyer, flyers that said, come to our house at five o'clock for cocktails and conversation. And then she made up the flyers and then we walked around and every house we could see from our front porch, we put one in the mailbox. And the whole time I'm like, I'm gonna get shot, I mean, I, you know, I just, what, this is weird. I don't. So then we get home, we clean up our house, we turn on some music, we get everything out and it's five o'clock and we're sitting out in front on our porch like this. And people walk by, this guy walks by with his dog, we're like, hey, are oh, you just walking your dog? Okay. Keep walking. So we're going to have, we're gonna have uh, people come over and later. Uh, so we sit there and I'm thinking, no one's going to come, and all of a sudden, here they come. One, two, three. We had like 15 people showed up on our front porch, and they're all neighbors. And they start talking to each other, and I'm like, yes, yeah, so we just had this idea, my wife and I had this idea that I wanted to invite you over. And, um, these neighbors are like, you know what? We've lived on this street for years, and we've never met you. And then there's some neighbors that were like, you know, we've lived here. We met you one time, but I'm so sorry I forgot your name. And, and they're all talking, and I'm sitting on my front porch, and this is so happy. But let me just tell you this: the happiest part for me. It so, made me so happy. So this younger woman walks up, and she's introduced to this older woman. And the younger woman says to the older woman, I think I know you. In fact, I think I dated your son in high school. <laughs> and the older woman says yes, we talk often about how you broke his heart. (laughs) And I was like, wait, 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 wait. (laughs) Please, just both of you, just pause for a second. I'm going to run in the house. I'm going to bring out some drinks. We're going to stand here because I really want to hear this story. (laughs) And they tell this story, and I'm like, this is so awkward and amazing. At the end of the story, the two ladies say, hey, we got to have coffee together and catch up. This won't do. We got to talk we, we got to talk more, like not, they weren't mad anymore, they were, they were like, hey we just got to catch up, I, w- I miss you, I miss coming over to your house, I, I want to reconnect. Now, I don't tell you that story because it was the greatest event in history, and it's probably not going to make it to any kind of gospel anyone would write, but it was a chance for neighbors with different faiths and backgrounds, addresses, moralities, beliefs to gather together and get a conversation going. Where will it go? I don't honestly know, but where did it start? I could tell you, sometimes it takes a table. Who's God calling you to a table this week? Will you pray with me about that? Lord, thank you for the table that you sat at with uh, Levi and his friends, even though it cost you some credibility. Thank you that you welcome us to your table, even though we're knuckleheads and sinners as well. Right now, Lord, we're, thi- we're thinking of someone perhaps that you're bringing to our mind, and Lord, will you give us opportunity this week to invite them to a table? In Christ's name we pray.